Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hummus Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jacksall. Today, we're going to be looking back at week one, recapping all the games from the big, long Labor Day weekend to start off the college football season. And then we have a very special interview with Ethan Piles, looking ahead at the Tennessee and Auburn seasons, as well as getting into a little coaching carousel thoughts and philosophy. And finally, we're going to preview some of the big games coming up on week two this next weekend. So thanks for joining along. Hope you enjoy. All right. So to begin the week one recap, a quick disclaimer, I uh, was pretty tied up with concert and social obligations this past weekend. So I wasn't able to watch as much football as I would usually like over the course of Friday, Saturday and Sunday. But I watched as much as I could during the day. And so I'm some of the night games I'm going to recap, I'm just going to touch on them super quick because all I did was just go back, watch the highlights, and read up on some of the big ones, look at the stat lines. A lot of the quarterbacks struggled, which was pretty shocking and evident to tell just from the box score alone. So I'm not going to try to act like I watched every single game this weekend because I didn't, but going forward, I'll be a little bit more in tune. So we'll hit most of these games just pretty quickly. Y'all already know what happened. So uh, to begin with, we'll start with the one of the most important season openers of all time, probably with Georgia and Clemson. Georgia beat them 10 to three defensive slugfest that we usually don't see anymore between two of the top five or 10 teams in the country. Uh, you know, as of late with all the offenses evolving so much, we'll usually get just wild 35 to 31 types of, shootout games between Bama, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State for the most part whenever those teams do get matched up in the postseason or regular. So this was pretty uh, pretty surprising to see this low scoring of a game. I think that shows that both defenses are as good as we thought they were. However, the offenses uh, probably not quite as good as we thought they were, although this will probably be the toughest test they see you know, the whole regular season until we get to conference championship and playoff weekends. So Christopher Smith for Georgia had the 74-yard pick six, which was the only touchdown of the game. Georgia was absolutely getting after Clemson's ass on the line. Their defensive their defense had seven sacks. So DJ, while it sounds like he didn't have too great of a day, he didn't really have time at all during the game to get settled in. And, you know, he played a couple big games last year but this is definitely a different different universe than playing Boston College or Notre Dame so it's certainly a tough tough game to start out your career when you're truly the guy against this Georgia defense and luckily for him and the Clemson Tigers they won't see a defense this good until if they get you know if or when they get to the playoff uh, in December and January so for Georgia even though I'm sure you would have liked to see the offense put up some points of their own. Uh, they are missing a couple guys like we talked about extensively last episode. So I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic going forward for Georgia and for Clemson. You know, there's no shame in this loss other than the fact that your offense was totally manhandled, but losing to, you know, a top five team in the country, that's not going to stomp your postseason hopes as long as you take care of business and with their extraordinarily easy next 11 games they should have no problem running the table and of course UNC and Miami didn't look too hot in their opening games either so Clemson should finish the season 12 and 1 
and have a pretty compelling case for the playoff. It'd still be surprising to me if they didn't get in, but you know, congrats to Georgia. Everyone always critiques them, wondering if they can win the big game and might not have been pretty, but they won it. So Kirby finally got him one and you know, Georgia's had trouble with pesky underdogs that they're way too talented to be hanging around with in, in the past few years and when they do get really close to the playoff, it seems like it's just one game where they slip up against a South Carolina type team that holds them back. So this will be a real test of maturity for Georgia going forward with a schedule where they should win all the way through the regular season and finish 12 and 0. Can these guys stay focused the whole time and put this game in the rear view mirror and get to Atlanta undefeated for the best shot, even if they were to lose to the SEC West champion in Atlanta, then, you know, they would still deserve to get into the playoffs. So both of these teams are fine going forward. Uh, it's surprising. Probably the most surprising thing is the Clemson offense just wasn't able to put up a single point, get in the end zone once uh, with their only score being a field goal this game. But hope everybody enjoyed watching the big Headliner on Saturday night. Next, we're going to move on to Virginia Tech upsetting UNC. I believe I was telling you all this was a trappy game last week, and that's why I didn't want to touch it on the line because it seems like UNC on paper should be a lot more than a five and a half point favorite than Virginia Tech, who's had all sorts of struggles. Coach has been on the hot seat coming into the season, and Virginia Tech, it just seems like it's been a long time since they've won one of these. Um, you know, games in Blacksburg and pulled the big upset, but they finally got it. And it was a big one with all the hype that UNC had going into the season. Uh, Heisman, one of the front runners and, you know, one of the top quarterbacks expected to go in the next NFL draft. Sam Howell threw three interceptions. Uh, I don't know what happened. I wasn't watching this game, but I'm guessing that that crowd just had him rattled. It looked like I saw a video of the Sandman beforehand and of course Lane Stadium was just absolutely rocking so that's a tough way for UNC to start off the season with your senior star quarterback absolutely dropping the ball in a big spot but shout out to the Hokies they deserve a lot of credit for you know holding on to this game and not blowing it down the stretch like a lot of other teams did and potential upset matches this weekend uh, staying with the S- ACC, uh, their other kind of third big team, Miami, got the doors blown off of them by Bama. Uh, you know, Bryce Young came out. Everybody had sky-high expectations for him coming into this year just after the success Alabama's had at QB from Jalen to and Mack, and he lived up to the hype. He's the first Alabama starter to ever throw for four touchdowns in his uh, first start. Chris Allen for Alabama unfortunately fractured his foot in the game and Saban came out today recording this on Tuesday evening saying he was likely out for the entire season which is a really unfortunate blow he was a key member of that starting starting defense and seems like Alabama's just had just an unbelievable run of linebacker injuries over the past few years uh, which continued when Henry Toa Toa hurt his arm or wrist in the game it was hard to tell exactly what it was and he was in quite a bit of pain but Saban said that it was just a sprain for him so he didn't give a timetable for a turn as far as I saw up to a couple hours ago but it sounds like it shouldn't be too long of an injury because thankfully because Bama's going to need him with some of these tough games coming up in the early middle season stretch 
That puts Alabama to 15-0 and in season openers under Nick Saban. Pretty incredible run considering we've faced quite a few good opponents, but he's better at prepping than anybody that's probably ever coached the game, so not too surprising. I thought Miami was going to hang around at least for the first two or three quarters and put up more of a challenge with their offense, but they got squashed pretty quick and really right out of the gate halfway through the first quarter. You could see it was just going to be another one of those bludgings by Alabama in the season opener. So more of the same from the Tide. Pretty impressive, especially on the offensive side with how many new faces there were. But these guys, you know, it's a long season ahead and the weeks three through six, I think it is when we have Texas A&M, Florida, and Ole Miss, not in that order, but it's going to be a difficult stretch against some really good offenses. So hopefully Bama gets Toa Toa back for that and the offense can continue to mesh and grow together going into a couple really challenging SEC matchups. Next, uh, UCLA took down LSU on Saturday night. This was probably, other than games like Washington getting upset by a FCS team in Montana, this is probably the most surprised I was looking back at all the games. I didn't I wasn't too shocked that UCLA won the game. It was more so how they won it. Um, going into this, everyone was wondering if UCLA would be able to hang with LSU's just size and physicality, pretty classic, you know, SEC versus Pac-12 uh, comparison there, but it was quite the opposite as UCLA outgained LSU. 210 to 49 in the rushing department and I believe if I remember correctly I saw that uh, in the third quarter LSU only had or going into the fourth quarter so through three LSU only had two rushing yards which is just hard to believe with the types of guys they recruit we'll get more into Coach O and his future how that's all starting to get more and more muddy at LSU uh, later in the pod, but that was a pretty shocking stat because it sounded like it. You know, everyone just assumed LSU is going to be able to push them around, but UCLA is still really athletic, and Chip Kelly might be kind of back in his groove. So it should have been a better game, but LSU didn't hear, uh, hold their end of the bargain. So congrats to the Bruins. Maybe LSU doesn't end up being that good this year, and it doesn't look as impressive of a win in November if LSU continues to just tank, but. Uh, just with how shaky and inconsistent the Bruins have been for the past many, many years. That's a big, if nothing else, just beating the the brand and a big SEC school. That's that's really huge for them to get that ball rolling and get some great momentum there in Pasadena. Next, Penn State beats Wisconsin at Camp Randall 16-10. to I watched most of this game in the morning before Bama kicked off. And boy, was it another classic Big Ten, just ugly battle. 0-0 at halftime. Graham Mertz, who people like myself were really high on going into the season, was an absolute train wreck. He threw two picks, fumbled the ball twice, lost one of those. Seems like every time I looked at the TV, Wisconsin was in the red zone and only ended up with 10 points. So... Uh, They missed a couple field goals. They were just going for it and just having completely careless plays when it mattered the most close to the goal line. Penn State really needed this one after a terrible last season. Um, You know, this was another win that definitely wasn't pretty, but there's no 
no shame in going to Camp Randall and getting a win the first game of the season. So Penn State, couple weeks, have the big matchup with Auburn, who looked really good in their season opener, all smooth there on the plains. So I'm looking forward to that one. And Wisconsin, they clearly have some stuff to figure out going forward because their quarterback that left, Jack Cohn, to Notre Dame, put on a show in Tallahassee, and Graham Mertz really couldn't have had a worst worst start to the season so I uh <laughs> I was really high on Wisconsin going into the year and not so much their divisional rival in the Hawkeyes who turned out to be great in the week one they beat Indiana 34 to 6 didn't catch any of this game but I think the score says it all I was probably better than we thought Indiana's probably worse than we thought especially coming off of such a good season last year Iowa plays Iowa State in week two which we'll get into later but that's going to be a great game those were all the big matchups that I had. Um, and then just quickly, I'm going to go run down some scores. There were a lot of anywhere from average to very good to elite teams struggling with far lesser competition. Uh, you know, week one, it's always hard to really get a read and feel for teams before they've ever played a game this year. But it just seems like there were a lot of teams that had way closer games than they had any business of being in, starting with Oklahoma. We were kind of keeping an eye on this one during the Wisconsin game. They only beat Tulane 40-35. to 35. Spencer, Spencer Rattler, the Heisman frontrunner preseason, threw two interceptions. The defense of Oklahoma, who I've been talking about on here, they're all I've been he- hearing about all offseason, gave up 35 points to Tulane. So not a great start for that Sooner D that was supposed to be the cat's pajamas this year. Um, apparently Tulane was pretty good. I guess their quarterback was looking pretty impressive, but still, you know, if Oklahoma, if, if this is one of their most talented teams in quite some time that has their eyes on the the big prize at the end of the year, they can't be beating Tulane by five. That's just ridiculous. And that game was supposed to be in New Orleans, I believe, got moved back to Norman because of the hurricane and it, it was just sleepy start for the Sooners, but I'm sure they'll turn it on. Maybe this is a wake-up call. Um, Really, really shocking score to see it that close, though. Continuing down, Iowa State only beat Northern Iowa by six. Iowa State was one of the other teams I was so big on this year, so all of my preseason takes are looking great. Oregon only beat Fresno State 31-24. Mississippi State edged Louisiana Tech 35-34. Oklahoma State beat Missouri State 23-16. to And finally, the there were so many of these games that were close in one score. Only one team really got the big upset, though. That was Washington, who, yes, I was very high on going to the year. Uh, losing to FCS team, the Montana Grizzlies, 13-7. to So quite a few very confusing, head-scratching results from a lot of big names and teams that had high, high hopes into this year. Everybody pretty much started off 1-0 except for Washington and UNC when there were, you know, true upsets. But, um, yeah, I think those those teams have a long look in the mirror and maybe this will kind of be a spark in their ass that they need and come back stronger week two and going forward. Then quickly, Notre Dame beat uh, Florida State 41-38 to in overtime. Like I said, Jack Cohn had a big game. The highlights for this game were ridiculous. I wish I got to watch it live, but just seemed like big play after big play and pretty impressive comeback by FSU after they were down 
couple scores in the fourth quarter. That team, you know, they've probably still got a long way to go, but this, even with the loss, should be uh, kind of gives the, give them some momentum in Tallahassee and, you know, help them get a little little further closer to to their true form. So, um, Irish get the win in overtime. And then lastly, the cap on the weekend, Ole Miss beat out Louisville 43-24. to was able to catch most of this game last night. Uh, the Rebels looked really good. Defense much improved. Uh, this was one game where, thankfully, I was kind of correct with my preseason takes on both teams, at least through week one. I like Ole Miss's offense a lot this year, and their defense does look much improved with a lot of those transfers they got in. They were playing fast, hitting hard. This kind of the targeting game everybody was talking about on Twitter. But Louisville... Uh, just struggled on both sides of the ball. They were clearly outmatched on defense. Ole Miss just runs such a fast, fast-paced tempo, and Corral played really, really well. He had great command, even without their head coach Lane Kiffin being there. So he had COVID protocols, and I assume he'll be back next week, but I'm not exactly sure of his timetable. But the Rebs certainly took care of business like they needed to against this Louisville team, who I think is going to have a pretty long season. So. That's it for a week one recap. I'll be going a little bit more in depth about some of the games going forward when I don't have crazy busy concert weekends with people in town to host. So um, hope you all enjoyed watching all the games over the Labor Day slate. It was pretty awesome. We had five ranked games and five straight nights, five or six straight nights of college football. So tonight's our first little break on Tuesday night. Um, when I was having friends here last weekend, Ethan Piles dropped down to the basement podcast studio and was kind enough to share some thoughts about his two teams, the Tennessee Vols and the Auburn Tigers. And, um, just kind of talked about his experience as a fan growing up and his outlooks on the coaching situation at both of those schools with new hires and what he expects going forward. So here's Ethan looking ahead to the Auburn Tennessee seasons and talking a little bit about week two matchup between Tennessee and Pittsburgh. All right, we welcome on Ethan Piles, lifelong Tennessee volunteer fan, onto the show. It's the first ever interview with a live audience featuring Alex Venezia and Adam Callis with the laugh tracks in the back. You might hear them chiming in from time to time. So we're going to talk to Ethan looking at Tennessee's season and the game ahead with Pittsburgh Week 2. So welcome, Ethan. Thanks for coming on. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Jackson. So just a brief introduction about myself. Um grew up as a lifelong Tennessee fan, which obviously super sick, um, especially growing up in Alabama when all your friends are big, big Tide fans and big Auburn fans, mid-2000s, like early 2010s when it was like Auburn wins it this year, Alabama wins it this year, Alabama wins it the next year. Like you're just like watching your team win five games a year. It was really fun. And then I decided to go to college at Auburn, so I was like, yes, finally. I get to watch some good college football. Unfortunately, that was the start of the end of the Gus Malzahn era on the Plains. Um, you know, I got to watch some great players such as Jeremy Johnson, Sean White. Um, you know, got to watch that beautiful game against Mississippi State that was like two to three or whatever. <laughs> like, it's just college football has been great to me over the years. Um, and so that's that's kind of enough about my background. But if you want to talk Vols, I mean. Obviously, we're going 12 and 0 this year, winning the national championship. I mean, Joe Milton killed it. Bowling Green, obviously a tough matchup for anyone. Like, I don't know. I mean, 
Alabama usually schedules little cupcakes like Miami to start off the year, <laughs> um, but Tennessee really went for it this year. We're like, yeah, we're going to play the big dogs uh, from Kentucky. So, I mean, obviously we looked pretty good. Milton had a great game. I, I'm pretty excited about this year. Um, that's all a lie. <laughs> I think with Tennessee this year, you could probably estimate about four to five wins, hopefully. I mean, hopefully we beat Pittsburgh next week, but I don't know. I don't really know much about them, but Aaron Donald went there. Aaron Donald didn't go to Tennessee, so <laughs> they do have a win in that regards. Uh, Jackson, you have any takes on the Tennessee season? Well, I think there's going to be a long way to go, obviously, because Hypo didn't inherit a very good situation. Tennessee had so many players that were talented but transferred this offseason with the more lenient transfer rules and everything through the COVID process I think what I've heard is that Hypo runs a more explosive offense I think Tennessee's gonna be struggling on the defensive side this year and that's probably what's going to be holding them back for the most part uh yeah we're just this is being taped on Friday morning after Tennessee just got done with a 38-6 window over Bowling Green in Knoxville so everything went as planned there but I think once they get into stouter competition not Pittsburgh is not very good, but I think that'll probably be a pretty even matchup. So it'll be interesting to see what the line is on that game when it comes out next week and how that turns out for both teams. But um, I think even if Tennessee doesn't have a good season this year, it should be a more exciting season regardless, even if it is only five or six wins, because even though you're going to lose a lot of games. It'll be more exciting to lose games, you know, 28 to 38, as opposed to not being able to move the ball at all on offense. Like Tennessee's suffered the past several years with Garantano and all the other quarterbacks. Dobbs was solid, but other than that, it's been a pretty, pretty tough run there at QB in Knoxville. So what are your thoughts on just Heupel in general, his philosophy and I mean, is what I'm predicting true? Like, would you still, even if they don't win a whole bunch of games, do you see him bringing a more ex, uh, exciting and explosive offense to Tennessee and maybe at least make the games a little competitive and high scoring down the stretch? It kind of like we've seen Ole Miss do a lot of the past years. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think like Move your chair up a little bit. watching like, Jeremy Pruitt try and run Alabama's team and offense and philosophy at Tennessee was just fucking horrible to witness. Like any like this is the the biggest like flaw of a team like in the SEC or in general is when they're like, yeah, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna be better than Alabama at being Alabama. Like it's just like impossible. And also like it's pretty impossible to like win in college or the pros now if you're not like moving the ball vertically down the field and like spreading it out. And like, like I said, like I use the example of like, you know, he's trying to run like the early, like 2009, 2010 Alabama offense, like where you have offensive linemen that are guys that are 350 pounds and can bench 700 pounds and can also run like four or five forties, like the greatest athletes of all time. And like Tennessee didn't have that. And they're just like, yeah, we're just going to run the ball over and over again. And like our defense is going to win us games. Uh, a little fun fact, they didn't win them any games at all. They actually lost a lot of them, hence why uh, Jeremy Pruitt is no longer around as coach. But 
I, I am excited to see like a more fun, like spread the field out, like score some points type of offense. And I think like, well, yeah, the defense might suck. Like the defense still sucked under Pruitt. Like it wasn't like it was like we were some dominant like team that won, you know, 10 games a year and like kept every game really close because our defense was incredible. Like it just was the team was bad all around and the offense was horrible and Garantano was, you know, a train wreck, like you said. I mean, it's pretty sad that you, like, look back as a Tennessee fan and you're like, man, I miss the days of Josh Dobbs and Eric Ainge. Like, you know, it's just a depressing life, basically, is my point here. But, like, I, I am excited to see something different. I think, like, Tennessee, like a lot of other programs in the Saban era, is kind of caught in this, like, coaching carousel world where – you don't beat Alabama, you're not as good as them. Also, Tennessee happens to be one of two teams in the country that has to play both Alabama and Georgia every year. The other team is the school that I went to for college. So it's pretty fun. But like, I just think like a lot of teams, and I think Auburn's getting themselves into this world too, and I think Tennessee's pretty stuck in it. Alabama was kind of stuck in this pre-Saban where you're like, you hire a guy and, you know, he has, like, a little bit of promise his first year. Maybe you win five, six games. And the fan base is like, fuck no. We want to win 12 games right now. Like, why can we not win 12 games right now? We're we're Tennessee. You know, we're this powerhouse school that won a bunch of national championships in the 1950s. And it's like, okay, like, yeah, but, like, all we're going to do is just, like, fire this guy and reset. And that's what Tennessee's been doing over and over again, particularly since the whole Kiffin thing went down. And it's just, like, I really hope that, the fans they probably won't because they're they're awful and like just expect that they should win you know win the east every year for some reason even though they you know haven't beaten alabama since when oh seven Saban's first year or oh six was the last time tennessee won since 2006 that is 15 years ago and like i don't know about anyone else's opinion on the matter i don't think it's going to happen this year either um, but I just think like they're stuck in this world where they like expect that like, oh, we should win 12 games. Like it was the case with Bush Jones. Like we had some seasons where like, yeah, maybe we underperformed for a team that had, you know, Alvin Kamara, Josh Dobbs, like a lot of pro players on it. Also, for whatever reason, Alvin Kamara was sitting as backup for most of his college career, which is, you know, we don't really have to get into all of that, <laughs> but like they just like. I don't know why there's this expectation that, like, because Tennessee has this history as a great football program that, like, you should win the East every year or at least be in the mix because it's just, like, that's not the case. Like, they've been dog shit for a really long time, and, like, it's going to take, like, sitting with a coach and, like, letting them build and, like, letting, like, guys get to where they're seniors who have been with the same coach. Like, there hasn't been guys who have gone to seniors where they've had the same offensive defensive coordinator probably since butch jones was at tennessee and he was always firing his coordinators because it's just like the world's greatest scapegoat is firing your coordinator but i don't know and like i said i think like auburn's in this same thing too but you look at a school like kentucky and like i'm really excited to watch kentucky play this year and i was last year too like they're a very exciting team like they're not gonna win the east probably like they they could but like they're definitely not going to, you know, be in the playoff or anything like that. But as a Kentucky fan, like, you're probably really excited. Like, hell yeah. Like, 
we could win nine, ten games this year. Like we could win a big, we could get in a big bowl game against you know a big like <coughs> Big Ten school like Michigan that they're gonna spank the shit out of. But it's like for whatever reason, like all these teams like don't they can't live with that like they're like oh like i want to win 10 games now and then i want to win 12 games the next year because at one point in the past we won a national championship and i think we belong there always and i just think like it's probably going to happen to hypo too it it's definitely going to happen to brian harson like brian harson is probably on the hot seat now like and like UCF won last night, like I I bet they have a pretty decent year, and I bet at the end of this year, like Auburn fans are sitting back, like man, we fucked up, because like they've got this anti-vax dude who's like gonna you know who's never coached in the SEC before, like won nine games at Boise State, like it's not some like god, and they like fired the guy who has beaten Alabama more times in Nick Saban's era than any other coach ever for just this random dude from the Midwest who, again, is an anti-vaxxer. And, like, I just think, like, Auburn's going to be stuck in that cycle, too. And it's going to be, you know, Jackson, you're obviously going to have a lot of fun with it the next five years, like, watching Auburn, like, you know, win six games a year and, like, all the fans be pissed. Like, it honestly, like, this is kind of a hot take, kind of an insane thing, but it it wouldn't surprise me if in, like, four years from now, like, Auburn fires their coach and they're talking about hiring Gus Malzahn again. Like, because it's just like all these teams are caught in this thing where they're like, we're not, we're not Alabama. We're not Saban. Like, how do we get there? And it's like, you, you literally can't like, it's the greatest like football team, like run ever, like of any, anything I've ever seen like greatest sports run really like I've never you've never seen a team like this where it's just like it's expected that they're you know gonna be the best team in the country like it's a disappointment if Alabama isn't the best team in the country year in year out like I remember like a couple years ago like Alabama came out of the gates and y'all are giving up a lot of points and I remember seeing tweets from like you and our other friend Matt about like how pissed you were about how many points you're giving up when you're still scoring 60 and like winning every game and you're coming off a national championship. Like that's where they're at. And like y'all are at the point now where you're like, let's talk about basketball. Cause this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, like people were obsessed with Avery Johnson and like, I mean, now it's Nate Oates and the basketball team is now really fucking good, but it's like, you're so bored with the dominance that like, you're obsessed with basketball and this is kind of a long side tangent, but I guess my point is like, it's just like no team is going to be that like Georgia's the closest version in the sec that's like there and they haven't beat Alabama. Like they haven't won a national championship and like, yeah, like you've got like the Clemson's of the world, but like they benefit from the fact that they don't play anybody like, you know, like Alabama's playing Miami week one, like, if you look throughout the schedule, like that's probably going to be like the third or fourth most difficult game Alabama's playing this year. Like that could be Clemson's only competition in the entire fucking conference. Like, I mean, they don't even play them the regular season. Yeah. (laughs) And like, yeah, UNC might be good. I think UNC could be on upset alert. We've been talking this weekend. You want to go into that? Well, quickly back to uh, Tennessee, you kind of answered a question that I was going to ask you already, but 
just talking about the nonstop carousel and you you have these programs that were really good and you know the late 20th century and into the 2000s like Nebraska, Tennessee, even Miami who has been pretty solid recently but they haven't returned to their level of dominance like they would like to and i mean nebraska is the easiest target right now with all that's happened with them the past few weeks but i mean you 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 mentioned how just rolling over coaches constantly doesn't help anything cuz these kids will have different coaches and coordinators throughout their college career. And it's just impossible to build chemistry that way. Even if it's a talented roster, you're going to suffer against the stout competition. Um, But, and, and just the expectations of teams that were the cream of the crop in the eighties, nineties, two thousands. Now, if they've been down and out for 10 or 15 years, you think about the last time, I mean, especially Nebraska, but Tennessee a little bit more recently, like, Kids that are sophomores, juniors, seniors in high school right now, like they don't remember a time when Tennessee, Nebraska were very like relevant consistently on a national level. So I know a lot of it is the fan base just having to take a look in the mirror and say, okay, that's one thing. Great, great thing about Kentucky is I feel like they know who they are and they don't try to be anything more than that. And while this season could be a great success for Kentucky winning nine or 10 games in the SEC East, they are very grounded and realistic. They're not expecting to win the SEC championship, but they'd be super thrilled with a nine and three season. That'd be a great accomplishment in Lexington. But you have other fan bases who have tasted the top of the mountain and they just have to get back there and it, it feels like Tennessee and some of these other programs just end up getting in their own way. And of course, that's a really hard thing to judge. And it's a fine line between, you know, sometimes you just don't have the right guy. And I think it's clear that looking back, like Derek Dooley was probably just not the right guy, you know, not a great hire. But then sometimes you have coaches who it just takes them a few years of getting all of their kids into where the seniors were their recruits too, not the last guys. And yeah, it's 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 a fine it's it's hard to tell like okay is this the wrong guy or does he need more time so if i'm understanding what you were saying correctly it's kind of like tennessee and auburn which auburn hasn't really been in the carousel a whole lot compared to other teams but once you make one fire it can be a downward spiral spiral pretty quick if you hire the wrong guy initially but are you do you think that teams should just be more patient overall let coaches get you know four years worth of recruits in there and then maybe instead of the normal like year three if you don't perform well your first couple seasons and you're already on the hot seat do you think maybe that should be like waited out to year five year six because then you know that's a long time to wait if it really is the wrong guy but also it's you know you you ask a coach to come into Tennessee or Auburn and if 75 percent of the roster are guys that were recruited for the last coaching staff and especially for like Gus Malzahn's scheme is so unique and different than your average college coach like it definitely seems like year three is very soon to be putting someone on the hot seat when at that point only half of the roster are their recruits and they're all underclassmen so do you think Tennessee Nebraska other programs like that um, you know even Texas could benefit from just 
just pumping the brakes a little bit and saying, hey, if we hire a guy, let's trust who we hired as AD to make a good call on that and let them get all four years of their guys in and then maybe give it another year or two if things aren't going too, too bad and see how that shakes out instead of just, you know, year three, seven win season, you're out the door and we start this whole process over again. Yeah, no, I agree. But before I answer that question, I just want to get the thought out there that there were multiple times when Tennessee fired coaches and Scott Frost was like the number one guy that they wanted and he like turned them down. So again, Nebraska's a shit show right now, but there was a period of time where like Tennessee fans would have been jumping up and down and high-fiving each other if we had hired Scott Frost. But I do think I, I really agree with you. And I think like, it's like, it's obviously like a complex thing. Like it's not like cut and dry, like, Oh, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's tons of money and stuff and that goes into all of this. Like it's, you know, I'm not a AD, like I'll never be an athletic director. Like I don't have that knowledge, but I just think like part of it is just, there's like this immediate pressure of like, if the coach doesn't succeed or like at least exceed or meet the expectations that are there for them in year one, like they're already like the fans already want them gone and like the boosters already are talking about new guys. And I think like that's part of the issue. And so I think like, like you said, like Tennessee fans need to take the identity crisis of like, okay, we are now the Kansas of the sec. Like we have been bad for a long time. Like we've been losing to fucking Vanderbilt for a couple of years now. Like we need to like take a step back and be like, okay, like, let's get excited if we beat Vanderbilt this year, you know, maybe we roll in and like we somehow catch a win against Kentucky, like get excited about that. Like maybe Tennessee makes a bowl game this year and it's like excited about that. But it's just like, there's this thing of like, no, we want more. We want more. We want more. Like we want to be great. We want to be as incredible as we were when, you know, I was like in, in the womb and it's just like, I think it's, like, part of that. But then I also think, like, another layer of the equation is I just really hate how these teams will fire their coach when they don't even have a remote clue who they're going to hire. It's like, yeah, when Alabama, like, fired um, Shula. Shula, it's like you have Nick Saban and Rich Rodriguez in discussion. Also, Phil Fulmer was in those discussions, which, you know, that's that's a whole can of worms we don't have to get into what? either. Yeah, have you not heard that? No. <laughs> Dude. We'll save that for another one. Okay, yeah, yeah. Every Everyone that's listening, do some Googles on Phil Fulmer, Alabama coaching search, and he was in the hunt for that job, like in a I no... My, I think my dad would have moved to New Zealand if that happened. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what would have happened, but it would have been pretty funny, like just objectively, like his, history-wise. Like it probably wouldn't have worked out, but we'd be sitting here right now like... And it, the world would be different, like, you know, Nick Saban would be coaching in the NFL or, like, whatever, and we would be like, oh, Phil Foreman probably fired, and Alabama would still be shit, and we would just be sitting there like, man, I can't fucking believe <laughs> that they hired Phil Fulmer. But, like, I just think, like, you look at that, and it's like, yeah, obviously, like, Alabama completely changed the trajectory of not only their football program, but literally the entire state's economy, like, in that moment of hiring Nick Saban. But it's like Nick Saban was out there. And like wanted that job, but it's like 
you're Tennessee, like, and you look at, like, the last two Tennessee coaching searches have been such a shit show. Like, the Jeremy Pruitt one, when you hired the guy that used to coach at Rutgers, who... Ciano. Yeah, who was at Ohio State, and then they were like, oh, like, he was, the fans didn't want him, so they pulled up all that shit about how he was at Penn State, and when all that went down, like, and then it was just, so he didn't get hired, so then it was just, like, over and over again of guys turning them down and then the same thing happened again and then you land on hypo and it's just like yeah I, I get like not being okay with mediocrity but it's like you know if you're an employer like and your employee is doing mediocre work like you're not gonna fire him knowing that there are no better candidates out there and I just think like there's just like fans and boosters put all this pressure on athletic departments of like, we need to be good now. Like we need to be good now. Like, and teams wind up losing money. Like, you know, Tennessee's probably still paying Derek Dooley money. Like it wouldn't surprise me. Like, it's just like these, you have these huge buyouts and it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's always been so weird to me. Like that kind of thing. Like, like, I don't know. Also like with the whole, like my first part of that answer, like not putting pressure on guys, like, the same, like, you look at, like, the career of Peyton Manning, for example. Like, Peyton Manning set the record for most interceptions in a season in NFL history his rookie year and, like, never really came around until, like, his fourth or fifth year in the league. And now you look back and he's, like, you know, arguably, like, a top five NFL player of all time if you put a lot of value on the quarterback position. And it's, like, no one in that first year was, like, man, we got to we gotta draft a new guy. Like, we – we have to get a new guy and like I just feel like it's only in like the college football coaching world for whatever reason just has this thing where it's like everyone expects it's like the grass is greener almost it's like you look at like these teams like Alabama Georgia Oklahoma Clemson you know Ohio State like these programs that are these machines now where they're just like they're gonna be top 10 in recruiting every year like Oklahoma is gonna have the favorite for the Heisman every single year because they have great coaches who are there and like have built up these programs and like some of it like honestly with Ohio State it's almost like the program itself is bigger because it's like they've switched coaches and just haven't skipped a beat but it's like there's like this culture there and like this level also I mean they play in the Big Ten so they you know their their biggest rival is Michigan (laughs) but like I just think like there needs to be like a little bit of like a from not only the fans and also I mean it's incredibly hard to ask fans to do something especially Tennessee fans because those people man they're nuts but like just like you know from boosters and from schools and from athletic departments like taking a step back and being like okay like yeah we we won five games this year like that wasn't great but like either like know the guy that you're going to hire or like don't fire your coach because it's like you you just wind up like in this constant cycle of shit and like you're gonna like you keep a coach around for a couple years like your team is gonna get better like you keep Josh Heupel around for a couple years like Tennessee is like going to perform better than they are this year just based on the fact of like experience and like he's now able to recruit his players for his system and have them around and like they're going to know each other and be involved with each other and like the same for Auburn but it's like I just have this feeling that like particularly with Auburn this year that it's going to be like an immediate like 
oh shit like hot seat like red button like we screwed up like who do we hire next and then it's going to be the same churning rumors where you know oh we saw bob stoops had a flight to atlanta this weekend (laughs) like and it's the same thing with john gruden like it's just like these fans are delusional and think that like the you know like these guys are just gonna like come out of the woodwork and not only are they gonna come out of the woodwork but then our team is gonna pay them like look at like texas a&m and jimbo fisher or like florida state like it's like they paid that man so much money to like go there and like what what has happened like they've been high like and he's like now like you know i don't know is he the highest paid coach question i don't know if he's not he's gotta be yeah he's like up there and like texas a&m's athletic department like they bring in a ton of money like for sure like it's yeah like it's fine for them but i just mean like like what what did they expect like they thought like this guy who was at fsu like you know was just gonna come right in and like they were gonna be better than alabama when fsu themselves wasn't better than alabama like it's just like and it's – I think, like, it all – all these conversations for me, like, always go back to Saban and Alabama. And, like, you can really, like – if you just take, like, the step back and, like, think about how many SEC coaches and even not even SEC coaches, just, like, coaches everywhere, how quick that the turnover has been since he's been in college. And, like, I bet I, – I know – I have no, like, statistical basis for this. But I bet if you, like, were to say, like, average out coaching 10 years, like – before Saban like you took the 10 years before Saban started coaching Alabama and then the 10 years after like especially in the SEC they would be so much shorter because everyone thinks that they like have to be that and it's like you know the Patriots had their run in the NFL and like it wasn't as dominant as Alabama's is but it's like the most comparable thing and you didn't see like every NFL team like every year being like we have to completely retool so we can be as good as them like you kind of sometimes just have to accept that like there is someone that is better than you it's something and like okay we have to find this niche and like that was what auburn under gus malzahn was good at and like same with texas a&m when johnny manzel was there or like ole miss during those random hugh freeze years where they were winning like it's like you find this niche of like oh we have these really dominant receivers or we have these really dominant quarterbacks or with Auburn, it was almost like a scheme thing where Auburn's scheme. And then also the whole Auburn Jesus luck thing played into it. But it's like, you have to find this like, like niche of like, okay, like we're good at this. Like we're going to build this thing up. And like this one thing we are better at than Alabama is. So maybe when we go and play them, we can beat them because they're, we're going to be so good at doing this one thing. And so for Auburn, that was, you know, running the football. And, like, you look at, like, the game with, like, on Johnson and Jarrett Siddham's team. Like, th- Alabama could not remotely stop the run game. that, And, like, the offensive line was incredible. And, like, the defense was really good that year too. But it was, like, definitely just, like, running the ball down their throats. Like, I'm pretty sure on Johnson carried the ball, like, 50 times that game. He also injured himself, and then the rest was history, and Gus Malzahn is now not coach at Auburn anymore, probably because of what happened at the end of that year against Georgia and then against his now team that he's coaching, UCF. But, like, I just, like, think that, like, there has to be this, like, balance of, like, okay, like, 
we have this thing that we're good at like let's sit on this and let's allow this to build and like maybe you know in a couple of years like you know with Ole Miss it was like those receivers were so good and like their offense was just incredible like they were unstoppable and it was like okay now we've got this quarterback who's been here a couple of years I forget that douchebag's name but um oh uh Matt Corral the coat the quarterback for Ole Miss when they beat y'all oh uh, Kelly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chad yeah, Kelly. Yeah, yeah, Chad yeah, Kelly. Yeah. That Swag was that douchebag's name. Swag Kelly. <laughs> Swag Kelly. So like they had, you know, they had Swag Kelly and they had like they had AJ Brown and um DK Metcalf, right? Mm-hmm. And like you know, like Chad Kelly obviously wasn't like this amazing quarterback, but like he was in the system a couple years. <laughs> he was in the system a couple years. Like he was familiar with these receivers that are like now you know two of the best receivers in the nfl like and they won they beat alabama twice and like now they think that they're an elite football program which like if we really want to get into that discussion Ole miss is not an elite football program you can put on the record now heard it here first breaking (laughs) (laughs) breaking news like jackson if you can drop in like an uh like alarm sound right now or something like Ole miss Ole Miss is not an elite tier program. At best, they are a, a C tier SEC program. They are the Kentucky of the West, and like Mississippi State might be better at football historically than them. Yeah, not not necessarily right now, but just over time. Also, Dak Prescott played at Mississippi State, so they got that going for him. No lies detected there. Um, so to wrap it up. I guess let me get your thoughts on Tennessee and we'll do Auburn while we're at it. Clearly a stepping stone year for both programs. Like we've been talking about, you know, the win loss record might not be too pretty. Not what fans are used to or expecting, especially at Auburn from, you know, having quite a few decent or very good years recently. But what is your idea of a successful season, whether it's a win total or more of a, you know, untangible just looking competitive staying focused all the way through november what constitutes a successful and an unsuccessful season for both of those programs for you this year well i think for tennessee i mean as i've been talking about the fans a lot like you have to hope at least like i'm in the perspective now of like i would be incredibly happy if like tennessee made a bowl game this year like I would I would be excited about that. And like it would be nice to not get our ass beaten in by Alabama and Georgia and Florida. Like it would be nice for those games. Like maybe the Florida game or the one of the games, the Alabama game will probably not be close. But maybe like we play Georgia really close and then after that game people are like worried about Georgia or something because of how close they played Tennessee. And like a season like that where you win, you know, we beat Pittsburgh, like we win the games that we're supposed to. Maybe we sneak one out against Kentucky. We have to be Vanderbilt. Like, come on, Tennessee. Like, you have you have to be Vanderbilt in football. Like, they can beat you in baseball and basketball, but like, you have to beat them in football. You got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, and like that's that's where I draw the line. So like, yeah, that's my idea of a good season. Is like Tennessee goes like six and six or seven and five, beats Vanderbilt. Like, and one of the big games is close and competitive. I think I would be excited and I could see that happening like 
obviously we were just playing Bowling Green, and as much as I joked about them being a powerhouse, they're actually the opposite. I've heard they're one of the worst teams in college football this year. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Alex. But, like, I think, you know, with that said, like, the passing game looked good. The run game looked good. Like, the defense is going to be bad, but I'm fine with that. Like, it would be nice to score some points for, you know, like once in a very long time Tennessee hasn't really scored since Butch Jones was coach and like so I think yeah basically that was a a long way to say that but I'd say like making a bowl game beating Vanderbilt like playing a good team close I think I would leave this season like yeah I'm I'm excited about the Josh Heupel era like you know then maybe the next year we win eight or nine games maybe we take one of those games against Florida Georgia Alabama then we're in this position of like exactly what I'm talking about where it's like, you're letting this thing build and like, it's not always going to be there. Like there might be a year after that where a bunch of guys leave for the pros or like, you know, they're seniors and graduate and we have a year where we're six and six, but like you have to take that with it. And like, so that would be my hope is, you know, a bowl game appearance at the least and a win over Vanderbilt at most. And then for Auburn, there's kind of no telling. I mean, like you said, like, it's weird. Gus Malzahn has such a specific him scheme that he runs, although when he used to UCF, it looked like he was changing it up, which he never really did at Auburn. But, I mean, obviously, like, Bo Nix is a junior now. Like, he should be great at this point. I was told he would be great. And, like, he, I mean, you know, you look at his first game as a starter. It was that game against Oregon where he had that crazy-ass, like, play to end the game, and, like, we won – you know, I, I left watching that game like, wow, like, this kid might actually be really, really good. But it never really came to fruition. He also throws the worst picks of all time. Like, all time. Another, you heard it here first. Like, you can watch Bo Nix highlight reel. I mean, the play at the end of the game against Georgia in 2019 yeah. is one of the most atrocious football decisions you will ever see in your life. But I think for Auburn, Real quick, the Arkansas from last year, the backward spike that never was, that that could have gone down in history. Yeah. Going to be a deep cut here in a few years, but that That's, could have been historically historically low, low light. That's a really good pick, too. And, like, he got so fucking lucky on that, too. Like, that was, that was some real, like, oh, God's an Auburn fan. Look at, look at this. <laughs> also, okay, I'll, I'll preface the God is an Auburn fan joke for anyone out there that doesn't know. Like, if you go to Auburn, like, for whatever reason, like, people claim that the sunsets only happen in Auburn because the color of the sunset is orange and blue. And, like, I'm in Denver right now, and, like, I I saw a sunset from my plane last night. Like, I was probably over Texas or something. But I was definitely not in Auburn. Was it and yeah, yeah, you know, I guess, yeah, maybe, maybe God's just a big football fan. I'm sure that's the biggest thing on on his plate right now. But with all, with all that aside, like, I just, I think, like, I think the same for Auburn. Like, I think more than six wins, probably like an eight to nine win season would be great. But like I said, I mean, you got to play Georgia and Alabama, so there's two guaranteed losses pretty much and like I do think that for Auburn it could like you said like best case worst case I think the worst case for Auburn this year could be really fucking bad like I think you could see Auburn going like five and seven and dropping to like Ole Miss and Mississippi State and like 
we are like midway through the season and it's like, yeah, people are talking about Bob Stoops fight pattern in Auburn. <laughs> like, and you know, people are talking about Bruce Pearl because it's like the only thing that they have. And so, I mean, I, I hope that doesn't happen, but with the rate of like people being upset with Gus Malzahn when he was coming off of years where he beat both Georgia and Alabama, like they're pretty finicky on the planes. And like, I, I don't see that changing. I think they expect, and I think it, that the most is completely linked to Alabama and like the little brother syndrome and the feeling of like, Oh, we have to be as good as they are because like, it's the only thing that matters in, in Auburn's football season is the iron bowl. Like it really is. It's kind of crazy. I think Auburn could go one and 11 and you beat Alabama and it's like, people are fucking excited. And like, I just think that like that is playing into it. And I think people need to kind of get over that. Like we're going to lose to Alabama. Like, it it's going to happen. Like, and Auburn's probably going to lose to Georgia, too. Like, you got to accept those. And they're probably going to drop a couple other games here and there. Like, don't expect Auburn to win the SEC West or anything like that. Like, I would be incredibly surprised. But I think, like, best case, like, you're looking at an eight to nine win season, like an Outback Bowl appearance per chance. Um, but at worst, you're looking at, like, six and six, five and seven, like that man could be fired by the end of the season. That's that's my hot take that I don't really believe in as much as the other two. The other two are just facts that I said. Ole Miss not being an A tier school. That's that's a fact. I forget what the other one was, but Bo Nix interceptions. Oh yeah, Bo Nix throwing the worst interceptions of all time. That's also a fact. Like like he said, the Arkansas play, you can watch that. The Georgia play, I mean he lost that game in in the worst throw of all time literally to a guy that was just standing right in front of him but I think like my hot take that I don't really believe in but I could see possibly happening is that Auburn fires their football coach this year this year yeah what record what record does it take for that to happen five wins but again I don't I don't think five wins will happen I think I think they'll win more games. I mean, I think Auburn has a lot of talent, and like, as much as I'm shitting on Bo Nix, like he's still pretty decent. Like he's better than a lot of the quarterbacks in the country. Like mm-hmm. Tennessee would be thankful if Bo Nix was their quarterback right now. Like, but again, hot take. I'll, I'll end it. I'll end my segment on this. <laughs> like, I think it's a possibility that like maybe not fired, but like you're leaving this season, and like Auburn fans are like reading the booster rumor mill of who they're talking about hiring and like reading into what his buyout is because like I just I don't think that they're prepared for the post Gus Malzahn world I really don't and I think I mean I'm the biggest Gus Malzahn truther I think that went to Auburn because for whatever reason everyone always hated him I mean he did lose some games he shouldn't have but at the end of the day like Auburn outperformed every team in the SEC that wasn't Alabama, Georgia, or LSU in Gus Malzahn's time. And, like, if you include his time as coordinator, like, you won a national championship and then made it to another one, like, and beat Alabama four times. Like, come on. But, yeah, I just – I think Auburn fans aren't really ready for the new world that is, like, rebuilding from scratch and still having to play the hardest schedule in the country. 
That's going to wrap us up here. Thanks to Ethan Piles for uh, joining us, talking some Tennessee, Auburn, and coaching carousel philosophy. So appreciate having you on, brother. Hey, thanks, Jackson. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. And like I said, I mean, in the links of the show notes, you should just put the Bonix Georgia throw. <laughs> but like, look it up because it's it's rough. And also, there is this little play that happened at Auburn a few years ago. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it was pretty wild. So I'll just set the scene. We were playing Alabama, um, and Alabama was number one, and they were kicking this really long field goal as time expired, just as like a, a hope that they win. And then, you know. There was just a guy standing back there who grabbed the ball. All I I won't spoil it for you guys because I'm sure no one has heard of this before. Um, no one ever really talks about it, especially in Auburn. But just look it up. It's called like the the kick kick. kick. Punt seven. Oh, punt? No, it's not punt seven. Oh, they call it the kick six because you score. Six but a touchdown points. is seven. Well, yeah, but you you <laughs> time expired, so they didn't get to kick the extra point right that's fucking crazy dude yeah, but <laughs> motherfucker gets behind a mic and i might be new but i know how to clip audio <laughs> <laughs> but yeah check out the bonex georgia interception it is hot fire thanks everybody bye thanks again to my man ethan for coming on we'll start off the week two preview by looking at pittsburgh at tennessee while we're on the tennessee topic um, this game is in Knoxville. Pittsburgh's favored by two and a half. This is a really interesting matchup. I mean, neither team is very good, but I think it should be a good game. Uh, Pittsburgh, we've gone over Tennessee a good bit in the interview and in weeks past, but Pittsburgh's uh, quarterback, Kenny Pickett, is back for his fifth season, but the offense is not looking very good regardless of that. Defense is tough and should be pretty good without too much talent. Uh, this is, you know, probably just a classic kind of Pittsburgh, just hard-nosed team. They're going to be physical and tough, but not too talented. So Tennessee looked good in their week one game. Of course, it was against Bowling Green. He's probably one of the worst teams in the country. So take from that what you will. But this game seems like a toss-up to me. It'll be interesting to see how Tennessee's offense does against a defense who's a little more little more talented than obviously a Bowling Green squad so for both schools and especially the Vols just trying so hard to get back on track so that'll be a early morning kickoff at 11 a.m. Central uh, same time as Oregon the Ducks go to Ohio State one of the big headliner games of the weekend I don't know why this game is so early it seems like a great prime time they'd probably rather ABC would probably rather swap this out with the Michigan-Washington game that now looks like more of a stinker than they probably assumed with Washington dropping to an FS or FCS team week one. But the Ducks and the Buckeyes both have the new young quarterbacks who have only started one game. They both come in 1-0, although Ohio State, they struggled early on against Minnesota, but it sounded like Stroud really kind of found, found his form in the second half and started to really open up the offense with – their incredible receiving crew there in Columbus. Um, you know, Oregon, it'll be interesting to see how the young quarterback does in the hostile environment of the horseshoe. Uh, he should have a pretty favorable time against the terrible Ohio State defense. It's probably a pretty high-scoring game. Ohio State's 
actually favored by a couple touchdowns, so Vegas doesn't think this one will be particularly close, but I hope the Ducks can hang around and at least make it competitive. Um, you know, it, it would be shocking if they went into Ohio State and won, but this Ohio State team does seem pretty raw still. Uh, it's a question in question of Kayvon Thibodeau, of course, the star of Oregon defensive lineman will be able to play. He had to leave the last game with a foot injury, I believe, and haven't heard a status update on him. So that'd be a tough blow for Oregon to deal with if they can't have their best player on the field. So that's an early kickoff there to start off the morning in Ohio. Next, we've got my game of the week, Iowa at Iowa State. Uh, ri- weird rivalry game with in-state rivals that are not in the same conference, kind of like a Florida, Florida State, or Clemson, South Carolina. Um, but Iowa has won five straight this year. They started 2020 0-2. I think they had some COVID cons- COVID issues uh, to get this, get the, getting the season going, and then they won six straight and make that seven straight, dating back to last year with their big thumping of Indiana this past Saturday. Iowa was hit pretty hard by graduation in the NFL draft, especially on their lines. So I was surprised to see them really give it to Indiana that much. But it's going to be a great game. Uh, Iowa State, I mean, you all know this. They're one of the teams I was highest on going into the season, and they squeaked by Northern Iowa by six points. Surprisingly, they're still favored in this game by about five points last time I checked. So... That's kind of a weird one. I don't really want anything to do with that line in particular. I I mean, everything that I was thinking going to the season, I would say Iowa State should definitely win this game, and now I'm not so sure. First week kind of freaked me out. So uh, this sh- should be a great game. Both teams, if they win this one, then, you know, the, the sky's the limit for their season. Um, Iowa's obviously going to probably have a tougher time getting out of the Big Ten with Ohio State staring them in the face. But um, Iowa State, if they keep playing like they did against Northern Iowa, I mean, they've got just a senior team stacked with leaders and quarterback and running back supposed to be Heisman hopeful candidates, kind of dark horses. So I don't know what the hell happened. I can't say I tuned into Iowa State versus Northern Iowa, but this should be a pretty fascinating matchup game day is going to go be there in Ames and um, it's the one I'm personally most excited for this upcoming week at nighttime we've got Texas at Arkansas this is going to be another really good one Texas is favored by six or six and a half points right now Arkansas not super talented even though they went three and seven last year that's still a big big step forward for them with how just abysmally bad they've been the past several years especially in SEC play they're returning a lot they should be a really tough hard-nosed team Um, I kind of like them as an underdog all season because I think they'll be able to hang around with most people Texas uh, we talked about them possibly having a tough opening matchup with the Raging Cajuns last week, but they took care of business. I didn't see any of that game with it being during Bama, but final score, I believe, was 38-14, to 14, give or take a couple points, something in that range. So Texas did what they were supposed to. They didn't let Louisiana uh, hang around and, you know, 1-0 for Sark. So Texas seems like the rest of their season is still pretty unknown. 
This is going to be a really hostile environment there in Fayetteville. They've been waiting a long, long time to have some, any reason to get excited over this football team. And, you know, they'll be making a lot of noise when the Longhorns come into town. So, uh, I don't know. Texas should win this game, but I could see Arkansas hanging around and keeping this entertaining all the way through the fourth quarter. So, I kind of like that Arkansas taking the points. Um, I could see it being a lower scoring game, but not sure what the total is, but I'll be, I'll be tuned into that one as well as Missouri at, at Kentucky, kind of a game that most years would be an absolute snoozer in the SEC East. But like I've said previously, I'm really excited for both of these teams and think they have a good shot at maybe even finishing second in the SEC East above Florida, uh, Kentucky, Took care of business. Will Levis, Levis, their starting quarterback. Not sure how to pronounce that one. They've just got a lot of depth and just well-balanced on both sides of the ball. Um, Missouri, they're a team that's on the up and up with Eli Drinkwitz. You know, everyone that I've heard in the media that's talked to their coach this offseason has really just raved about him. So... Kentucky's favored in this one by five points there in Lexington. I think Kentucky will win, but I didn't really get a chance to see either of these teams play their week one game. So I might not hate Missouri catching those points either on on that line, but I think it should be a, a really exciting game. And whoever wins that one, I mean, they <laughs> technically control their own destiny in the SEC East. I don't see either one beating Georgia, but you never know. Georgia's kind of prone to coughing up a game like that once every couple years. So whoever wins that one, they'll definitely have their eyes set on set on the SEC East. And if not that, there's no reason that they shouldn't be competing for at least second place. So that should be a very exciting game. And lastly, at nighttime, the ABC game I mentioned earlier, Washington at Michigan, which seemed like it could be a lot more exciting a couple weeks ago if Washington had taken care of Montana in week one. Michigan, you know, who knows? Cade McNamara, I believe it is, won their quarterback competition. They they had a cupcake in week one and took care of them pretty easily. Um, but I'm kind of, kind of low on Michigan this year. Their defense should be pretty solid. I don't know how their offense is going to stack up. Um, Washington, you know, they're, they're supposed to have a great line, great offense all over the place, a good defense. I, I, I don't know what the hell happened with them. They're making me look like a fool. They're catching six points now in the big house Saturday night. This game, I honestly don't have a clue about either team, but it should be an interesting interesting matchup to watch at the same time as that Kentucky-Mizzou game in Arkansas-Texas. So I my gut still tells me Washington. I feel like they're going to bounce back from this loss, but I, I have a hard time putting much faith into either team after just Michigan's past several years and Washington's past week. So... I don't know, but it'll be exciting to get through week two and kind of have to have a better feel for a lot of these teams that we're still just kind of clueless on if they've only played a cupcake and get a get a better better sense for what they're going to be going forward throughout the season. So now those are all the big games for the week. So we're going to look ahead to some of my segments to round out the episode. Or if that sounded like a whole lot of I don't know about this team, I don't know about that team, but just to be totally honest. 
who really does at this point, especially with all of the close matchups from good teams hosting way weaker opponents in week one. It's it's confusing, and I'll try to be uh, <laughs> just as blunt and honest as possible. If I actually don't know what I'm talking about, I don't want to spew shit out of my mouth. So time for segments. Uh, once again, if anybody has suggestions for these, thoughts on cool names to tweak some of the segments, please reach out, text, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Uh, this is the most trial and error part of the podcast. So I've got a couple new segments on this week that we didn't have last week that I thought of that might be entertaining. Uh, the first new one, which is disclaimer, totally stolen from part of my take with their who's back of the week and said I have who's not back of the week. So I'm going to be talking about one of the traditionally strong programs who's been, you know, maybe flirting with being good or thinking they're on the up and up that drops a game that they probably shouldn't be dropping or at least in a fashion that they shouldn't be dropping it in. Um, So the week zero, if we were to do this, it would obviously be Nebraska. They are a very long way from their return to glory. And week one, the who's not back of the week award goes to the U. The U is certainly not back. No shame in losing to Bama, who looks like the clear-cut number one after week one, but it was just the fact that they weren't even competitive for a single drive in that game. I mean, it was pretty obvious that first, you know, half of the first quarter, Bama had pulled away, and there wasn't going to be any coming back, barring an absolute miracle. Miami, you know, they've been good the past few years. They've been flirting with some 10-win seasons and playoff, you know, deep into the season, but... They, they've clearly got a long way to go, and there's no shame in losing to a top top one, top four, top five team, but, you know, I, I, I thought they would at least be competitive, and it was very ugly. So Miami, we'll see if they can keep their spirits up and bounce back because they, sh- they don't have too hard of a schedule since they get to avoid Clemson. The ACC uh, Coastal is still you know, long way to go for that. Right now, Virginia Tech, I guess, is is in the best situation with them already having one conference win, but Miami, the U, is certainly not back. Uh, next, we've got the hot seat rankings of the week presented by Lee Corso. Uh, we've got Scott Frost at number one. Still haven't recovered from that Illinois bludgering, and the closer we get to the heart of the conference schedule, the more we're going to be talking about Frost, probably just dropping game after game in the Big Ten. Uh, I've still got Matt Wells at Texas Tech, number two, uh, just with how much they've struggled the past couple years. And Texas Tech, Houston team, who they have been very good in the past, but ever since the coaching change when Herman left, they have not been anywhere close to, you know, top 10, top 15 kind of sleeper team that we were seeing a few years ago. So I think Texas Tech still has a long way to go. But um, yeah, Matt Wells still number two on my list. And now we have a promotion and a demotion. I took off Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech since he got a signature win at home against uh, UNC. The, uh, The Hokies still, they have a lot of work to do. And even if they finish this season making a bowl game. I don't know what his future is going to look like, but this this win was huge, and I think it kind of got him off the hot seat for now. If they can at least just win 
win the games that they're supposed to. And in his place, we have everyone's favorite, Coach O, who we've talked about extensively before. He was talking shit to UCLA fans, walking into the Rose Bowl on Saturday, calling, saying that they were wearing a sissy blue shirt. And then the sissy blue uniforms proceeded to outrush his big bad LSU Tigers, 210 to 49 on the ground. Uh, you know, last year, all we heard was, oh, we lost so many starters. Oh, COVID, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, it, it wouldn't be terrible to lose to UCLA if they were more competitive, but they got absolutely pushed around. Uh, you know, the new quarterback, Max Johnson, sounds like he's a good kid, hard worker, but clearly a long, long way to go. So LSU should have a couple easy games before they get into the SEC play. But being in the SEC West, no win is going to come easy. And we are going to continue to follow Coach O very closely, as a lot of people are saying. This is starting to look like a Gene Chizik type of uh, downward spiral after his glorious 2019 National Championship season. So we'll see very soon if he's everything that uh, people made him out to be that year. Uh, next up, new segment again, we have the Tweet of the Week. This one comes from Mark Torrance at Mark Torrance on Twitter. He said, quote, Oh God, a Miami fan just had his turnover chain confiscated by TSA in the security line at the Atlanta airport, end quote. Uh, this, of course, it's pretty funny. Miami, I don't know if this was a joke. I assume he actually saw this, but it just reminded me of when Miami... Busted out the turnover chain as they were losing 27-0 to in the first half against Alabama on a replay, on a fumble turnover that got overturned by replay. <laughs> you know, the, the turnover chains, every, every team kind of has their little thing. I think it's all cool. It's fun. But you should probably leave it in the damn travel case if you're down four scores in the first half. I mean, I can only imagine if Alabama, when we were getting whooped so bad by Clemson a couple years ago in the national championship, if we got a, if we brought the turnover belt out when we were losing 35 to 10, Nick Saban probably would have strangled someone with that belt around their neck if they had done that. So, you know, that, that just looks so soft and it's kind of indicative of the whole Miami struggle to get back to glory. They like to act like the U and this, you know, big thing, big brand is still really awesome and cool. But you know what doesn't look awesome and cool? A, wearing a turnover chain when you're losing 27 to 0 in the second quarter. And B, when the replay gets overturned and it's not even a fucking turnover and you have to put it back in the box. Foolish. <laughs> I'm not the first person to roast them on this. But my God. Just have a have a little bit of respect for yourselves, Miami. You got to do better than that. Next news segment, I've got helmet stickers where I'm just going to pick a player or maybe a unit from a team or two every week who really just shined and outperformed expectations. The first one goes to my guy Bryce Young. First start as an Alabama quarterback. He went 27 for 38. 344 passing yards and four touchdowns against this Miami defense that I was told was supposed to be better, but can't confirm that anymore. Um, Bryce jumped up from being, I believe, the fourth or fifth 
highest odds to win the Heisman to the favorite after basically every other Heisman candidate quarterback was just peppering interceptions all over the place and, you know, either losing or being in a very close game. So first sticker goes to Bryce Young and his big breakout performance against the Canes. Second sticker goes to the UCLA offensive and defensive lines. Like I said, all we heard all week was how LSU was going to outpower and out-physical them. Classic thing to think of a SEC team going against a Pac-12 opponent and historically very fair, but their offensive and defensive lines totally dominated LSU. Um, and we talked a couple times about the running running stats, and LSU was just, they just couldn't keep up with them. So the next helmet sticker goes to UCLA, all five offensive linemen and their defensive line unit. Shout out to the Bruins. Next, we've got what I'm watching, one game in each time slot on Saturday at 11 a.m. Central. I'm looking most forward to Oregon at Ohio State. At 3.30 Central, we've got Iowa at Iowa State. And at 6.30 Central, a lot of good games in the nightcap, but Kentucky-Mizzou is the one that I'm personally most excited for. Although if Arkansas can hang around with Texas in the second half, I'll be really excited to watch the watch the scene in Fayetteville and probably have two or three screens going for those two in the Michigan game. So should be a pretty good night. Not any super sexy matchups, but lots of teams that are very hopeful still at this point in the season and, you know, wins on week two could really set them off on a good trajectory. The game of the week is Iowa and Iowa State, as I already said. The non ranked game of the week is Kentucky Mizzou. The Pac-12 after dark game of the week is Utah at BYU. Got a little in-state rivalry between the Utes and the Cougars. Uh, This one kicks off at 9.15 p.m. Central, so this should be right as all the other nighttime games are wrapping up. Utah, you all have heard me talk about them in the season preview. I'm really high on them. Uh, This year, they took care of business, thankfully, one of the only teams that I was super high on that just did what they were supposed to week one. Um, They're traveling to BYU, who just beat Arizona in week one, even though it's uh, technically not a Power 5 team beating a Power 5 team. Arizona is one of the worst Power 5 teams and probably the worst in the Pac-12, so, you know, don't put a whole lot of... of, uh, credit into that one with BYU winning, but I think this being a in-state rivalry and a late night against two teams that should both be pretty, if not really good this year, um, will be a great one to end the night on. My best bet is Cal plus 10 and a half. They're playing at TCU. Um, I was pretty surprised to see this line be so big because I think these teams are very similar they're both very well balanced should be just solid seven eight you know maybe you could see tcu winning nine games this year but both teams i think have good defenses competent offenses well balanced on both sides of the ball and cal did lose their opening game to nevada but nevada like i believe i touched on uh looking forward to last week's games is one of the better non-Power 5 teams in the whole country. They returned basically every player from last year's team who was already really good. So even though Cal probably should have won that game, they were favored by about a field goal. 
I really don't consider that a bad loss at all. And I think they're going to come back. And even if they don't win, they should be fine covering the 10 and a half. So I'm going to go ahead and hop on that tonight, probably, just so I can get it in case it drops down below the 10 to have that kind of 10, 10 and a half hook for some security. But that's my favorite play this week. We lost our best bet last week, thanks to Graham Mertz throwing 18 interceptions and fumbling the ball 40 times. That was a tough way to go out because if he doesn't do that and Wisconsin just makes a couple field goals and they win that game. But it is what it is. One and one on the season. We'll push forward, get to two and one with the Golden Bears. Lastly, game day grub, what I'm going to be cooking this weekend. It's a grilled honey glazed pineapple recipe that I make on my Traeger grill. Uh, I've made this a couple times before and it's really great for parties if you're hosting a lot of people super easy you can cut it up makes for a great appetizer shareable snack and everybody always loves it um, you drizzle the pineapple or excuse me you coat the pineapple just cut the skin off and then keep the pineapple whole coat it with brown sugar and cinnamon um, and then you drizzle on top of that with honey so it's kind of messy preparing it and then it can be a little bit messy on the grill. So I have like a little veggie plate uh, that I put the pineapple on so it doesn't get my grill grate super disgusting, although some of the honey will drip off. And it's definitely not easy to clean, but it's worth it. You cook this at 500 for 30 minutes, and I'll usually just set like three different 10-minute timers and just rotate the pineapple a little bit every 10 minutes so it gets an even cook. When you're done with that, I'll just take the pineapple off the grill, cut around it, make little circles, triangles, uh, get the core out of there, and that's it. So it's easy to do multiple pineapples at a time if you want to. Uh, most people don't think of fruit when they hit the grill on a Saturday in the fall, but it's actually a really delicious appetizer. Last week, the buffalo wings were a big hit, thanks to Garrett Bulldog for sending us the pictures of his creation recreation of the recipe they looked really good so if anybody gets around to making those or the honey glazed pineapple or any other recipes we do this year please feel feel free to shoot it to the twitter or instagram so we can share that as well and i'll tweet out this recipe um after i release the episode tonight or in the morning so if anybody's curious about proportions making it it's uh really easy and always a crowd favorite so that'll wrap up the week one recap and week two preview thanks again to ethan for coming on and sharing some thoughts on the vols and tigers and thank all of you for listening along so we'll be a little more tuned in weeks going forward since i don't have fish in town for the rest of the fall um, but hope everybody enjoyed the episode and week one and looking forward to week two so talk to y'all soon bye